if you're brought up as a Christian, wherever you are in the world, you will probably be taught about the Holy Trinity. It's something most Christians are taught and they accept it without any questions. When you start researching it, however, you quickly realize that it's a complicated topic. Um, for example, the BBC website is vast and it covers many, many different topics, one of which is religion. And in the religious section, there is a page dealing with the Trinity. Okay. Is that? Okay. There we go. Thought it wasn't going to appear. So this is from the BBC website. And it says, the Trinity is a controversial doctrine. Many Christians admit they don't understand it, while many more Christians don't understand it, but think that they do. And that's not a brilliant start, is it, really? And uh, I'm hoping to, to tackle this topic in one short talk. So let's start with a definition. What is the Trinity? So it says here, the Trinity is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity holds that God is one God and ex exists in the form of three co-eternal and consubstantial persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons are distinct, yet are one substance, essence, or nature. And uh, as it says at the top, this definition is taken from the Catholic Catechism. The Church of England version found in the Book of Common Prayer is very similar, except instead of using the word consubstantial, it says that the three are of one substance. In simple terms, then, this is what the Trinity is. One God in three persons that are co-eternal, together forever, and consubstantial, having the same substance, essence, or nature. The three persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is what is known as the shield of the Trinity. It takes the shape of the Celtic knot and comes from medieval times. It conveys the basic ideas of the Trinity. The Father is God, but is not the Son and is not the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Son is God, but is not the Father, and is not the Holy Spirit. Finally, the Holy Spirit is God, but is not the Father, and is not the Son. This then is a simplified explanation of what the Trinity is. But where do these ideas come from? Well, the first thing that you discover is that the Trinity is not found in the Bible. It's a doctrine developed by the early Roman Catholic Church to explain some of the teachings found in the Bible. These teachings are referred to as the Trinity template and consist of six passages which are listed here. So I'm not going to go through all of these six, um, but as examples, we'll look at the first and third of these passages. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And the third passage, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's from Ephesians. And as you can see from these two examples, there is no reference to the Trinity. What is mentioned is God, who is the Father, the Son, who is the Lord Jesus, and the Spirit or Holy Spirit. In each of these passages, these three things are mentioned in the same verse or in the same couple of verses. And this then is what is described as the Trinity template. And there are a couple of verses we will quickly look at that uh, in the authorised version or King James version of the Bible do seem to prove the existence of a Trinity. Let's start with 1st of John in chapter 5. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. And in actual fact, there are additions that have been made to this passage, which were not in the original. And many, more, many of the modern translations Leave out the added words. So this is the new international version of the same two verses. And it comes out as, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water and the blood, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Very, very different from the first quotation. The difference with the extra words removed is astonishing. And it's got nothing at all to do with the Trinity. The other verse uh, is in 1 Timothy and chapter 3. And this says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And the statement that God was manifest in the flesh was not in the original. The word God was inserted. And when we look at a modern version, again using the NIV, it's clear that the verse is referring to Jesus, not God made flesh. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Um, and these alterations have been known about for a great many years, and so Trinitarians don't actually try to use them as proof. In fact, I've actually heard of the man that first drew attention to these corruptions of scripture, but his name was Sir Isaac Newton. 
So tracing the history of the idea of the Trinity is quite difficult. Uh, it's a bit like tracing the history of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, because Catholics tried to push their history right back to the Apostle Peter, claiming he was the first pope, even though there's no evidence that he actually ever visited Rome. And in the same way, those who believe in the Trinity tried to push its origins back as far as possible. And uh, unless you read all of their work, it's difficult to know whether those that are claimed to have believed in the Trinity really did, or whether simply they have mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the same sentence. Certainly we know that there was a big controversy about the nature of God, and the word Trinity was first used in the late second century. The real turning point, of course, was in 322 AD at the Council of Nicaea, when the Nicene Creed was developed. And this is the Nicene Creed. It will be when it eventually appears. So the Nicene Creed says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And in one Jesus, Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. With the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation, came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. There's a bit more. But those who say there was a time when he was not, that's the Lord Jesus, of course, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Um, so this formula has been developed and refined, uh, but it is the basis of the Trinity. And uh, interestingly, at this stage, the Holy Spirit is barely mentioned, but huge emphasis is placed on the Son of God being eternal. And today's accepted version is the Catholic Catechism. Catechism. Hang on, now I'll get the words out. Catechism, which we looked at earlier. So, as time went on, the Roman Empire became divided into the Eastern Roman Empire, ruled from Constantinople, Constantinople and the Western Roman Empire, ruled from Rome. This also caused a religious divide, and in 1054, the Eastern Orthodox Church split from the Roman Catholic Church in the West. But the Eastern Orthodoxy still believe in the Trinity. I'll stop sharing a moment. And in 1517, an Augustine monk and Catholic priest named Martin Luther published a document called 
the 95 Thesis in Germany. And this began the Protestant Reformation. And he was objecting to the selling of indulgences. Indulgences were the remission of sins granted in return for certain actions. In this case, giving money to the church. And Luther argued that forgiveness could not be earned or bought, but was a gift given through the grace of God. So the Protestants rejected many of the teachings of the Catholic Church. But one of the doctrines they kept was the Trinity. And when the English Reformation took place, some 17 years later, they too adopted the idea of the Trinity. But not everyone believed in the Trinity, however. At the same time that the Protestant movement was growing in Europe, another group was growing who did not accept the Trinity, and these were known as the Unitarians. So we've seen then what the doctrine of the Trinity is and how it became accepted by virtually all Christian churches. So why do Christophians not believe in it? Well, as we've already noted, the Trinity is not taught in the Bible and uh, it's not believed by anyone who practices Judaism. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, begins with the creation, the choosing of God's people, how they became a nation and their history. It gives a complete set of laws that regulate how the God's chosen people are to treat one another and how they are to worship. Yet never once does it mention that God is a trinity. Quite the reverse. Over and over, it emphasizes the oneness of God. There we go. Get there eventually. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Lord is one. And that's pretty definitive, isn't it? Believers in the Trinity say that there is no problem with this. God is one. And the Trinity explains how that oneness is divided into three. But does that really work? Is it not like someone saying that the UK flag is light purple? Because red, white and blue combined make light purple. If God is a trinity, doesn't this emphasis on his oneness seem misleading? Psalm 103 tells us the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. He made his ways known to Moses and his actions to the children of Israel. Well, that's not true, is it? If God is part of a trinity, he seems to have deliberately hidden it from his people. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to his setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. 
And through the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking here to Cyrus, the king of the Persians. And he's talking about his creative power and that he can dictate world events. God emphasizes that there is no God beside him. If he is a trinity, surely that is not true. Surely this passage is misleading at the very least. So let's look at one more passage on this theme. There is one body and spirit, just as you were called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And you probably recognise this passage, if for no other reason than we quoted it earlier as one of the Trinity templates. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus about unity. He talks about one body, one faith, and one baptism. He also talks about one spirit, one Lord, and one God, and Father of all. If you're talking about unity and oneness, why would you use three parts of the Trinity as individual examples of oneness? Surely you would cite the three parts of the Trinity together. The Trinity itself being the greatest example of unity. Unless we are saying that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was guided by the Holy Spirit to be the author of many of the letters in our Bible to the young church, unless we're saying, are we actually saying that he didn't know or understand about the Trinity? Is that what it appears to be? And although it's claimed that the Trinity is implied in the Bible, in actual fact, when we start looking at it, it seems that the reverse is true. These are just a few examples of passages that contradict the idea. And there are many more. So let's turn our attention to the second part of the Trinity. God the Son. The doctrine states that he is co-eternal. He has always existed. He has always been part of the Godhead. But the Old Testament gives absolutely no hints of this. There are references to him. The New Testament constantly quotes these references, showing how they refer to Jesus. But these passages are all prophecies. They are looking forward to his coming, never implying that he already existed. Why then does the Trinity need God the Son? From what I can understand, it stems from the belief that only God can forgive sins. It was necessary that God die to provide remission from our sins. Again, I'm aware of no scriptural basis for this idea. And the closest I can come to it is the passage we took as a reading, Mark chapter 2. Because we read in verse 7, we saw the scribes getting angry. And in their hearts, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because they think that only God can forgive sins. If they were right, then when would there be a more appropriate moment for Jesus to explain that he was God the Son? Or even if he didn't explain it, then why didn't the writer, why didn't Mark explain it? 
or Matthew in his parallel account of the events. Instead, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And that is how he was referred to, the Son of Man or the Son of God. Born when the Holy Spirit came upon his mother Mary and the power of the highest overshadowed her. He is never called God the Son and Mary is never referred to as the mother of God. And the letter to the Hebrews talks about Jesus' role as our high priest. And in chapter 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. As a son of man, we can understand how Jesus was tempted in all the ways we are. And if we, uh, he was also the son of God, we can appreciate how he might be able to resist those temptations. But I'm not sure quite how well this passage can be understood if Jesus was God the Son. And there's another problem to be found in the letter of James and chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt him. And that presents a definite problem, doesn't it? Because if Jesus is God the Son, then one of these passages has to be wrong. How could he be tempted in all points as we are if God cannot be tempted? So if you accept the Trinity, you must accept that some parts of the Bible are wrong. And there is one passage that is a go-to passage for those who believe in the Trinity. And that's the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Turn with me, if you would, to this chapter. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life lies the light of men. You see, the translators who worked on this passage believed in the Trinity, and it's possible that some bias crept in without them realising it, because they didn't actually follow the rules. The word he and him in this passage are from the Greek word autos, which is not gender specific. It can mean he, she, or it. And the rule is that autos should be translated according to the gender of whatever is being described. What is being described is the word. And the word is gender neutral. Therefore, autos should be described as it. Therefore, this passage should read like this. 
in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god it was in the beginning with god all things were made through it and without it nothing was made that was made in it was life and the life was the light of men and there are actually a couple of other words i'd like to alter the word through it's translated as by in the king james version as in all things were made through it can also be translated as because of or even on account of and the word without or as it says in the king james version not anything actually means separately giving us this in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god it was in the beginning with god all things were made because of it and separately nothing was made that was made in it was life and the life was the light of men all of a sudden it reads very differently and however the point of the passage is found in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as the, the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth this then is the crux of the matter that jesus was the word become flesh but how those who believe in the trinity and those who don't understand this concept is very different clearly at the start of this chapter john is referring to creation so let's go back to the book of genesis in the beginning god created the heaven the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters so we have here an image of a shapeless earth covered with water and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So let's start with the Trinitarian view of these events. And I hasten to add that this is how I am told they understand the creation, not my interpretation of what they think. When God speaks, when it says God said, that is God the Father acting through God the Son to instruct the Holy Spirit to perform the required actions. And this happens at every stage of the creation. On each day, God the Father acts through God the Son to instruct the Holy Spirit. So when we fast forward to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, transforming God the Son into a fleshly being, so she can be born in Bethlehem and Mary can become the mother of God. 
When God the Son has grown to adulthood, he will die on the cross to provide a way of salvation for us. So that's the Trinitarian interpretation. Of course, the non-Trinitarian view is that events took place as described. God spoke, and his power, the Holy Spirit, performed his will. It has always been his intention to provide a way of salvation through his Son, and he had this in mind as he created the heavens and the earth. From the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, through the law and on to the prophets, God provided prophecies that looked forward to his Son and spoke of his role as Messiah, Saviour, and future King. In New Testament times, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon Mary, and she becomes pregnant with the Son of God. Jesus fulfills the prophecies that have been made about him, and through this, he is the Word of God made flesh. Because he is the Son of Mary, he is the Son of Man, and is tempted in all the ways we are. But because he is the Son of God, he can resist that temptation. When he dies, because he has committed so sin and so does not deserve to die, his death becomes a sacrifice on our behalf, dying in our place, providing a way of salvation. He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, but will return to set up God's kingdom upon earth, when the glory of his Father will fill the earth, and God's creation, which began in Genesis, will finally be completed. These, then, are the two ways to view the nature of God. As a trinity, where God the Father works through God the Son, so that his will be performed by the Holy Spirit, or the non-Trinitarian viewpoint, where God the Father performs his will through his power, the Holy Spirit, and his Son fulfills the prophecies made about him throughout the scriptures, providing a way of salvation for mankind. So, I've tried to provide a brief overview of the subject, looking very, very quickly at topics we could spend a very long time studying in detail. But I hope I've demonstrated in a small way why Christians believe that what they do. So, thank you for your time.